If you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, to join me in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, where we're going to be continuing on in our sermon series, where we are allowing Mark to introduce us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in such a way that he expects us to have a response to him, a response to his glory and to his power. Over the last few weeks, we've seen God, Christ's power on display, the kingdom power uh, displayed through his miracles. We've seen his grace and mercy rejected. Last week, we looked at his compassion. This week, we're going to look at Jesus Christ coming into conflict with the spiritual leaders of his day. I shared with you last week that I wasn't much of an athlete growing up. My brothers got those gifts. Um, But I have always been a rule follower. I love following the rules. And so when we would get together and we would play sports, I very rarely, because I wasn't the athletic one, uh, did I I play. My favorite position was umpire. Because I love to make sure that everybody followed the rules. And I know that I'm not alone. Our culture is obsessed with with umpiring and making sure that people get it right. Just look at any sports uh, uh, activity or, or game that's going on in the world today. We've rearranged the the televised baseball broadcast specifically so that we can make sure that 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 strike box is up there so we can know whether or not the umpire got the call right. We have instant replays and coaches' challenges, and we are now a, a culture that's as obsessed with umpiring the umpires as we are the players in the game. And in my house, when we get a new game that comes into the house, my job, because I have claimed the job, is to make sure that I get out the rules, and I read the rules, and I make sure that we follow the rules, and everybody is going to play the game according to the rules. We have a game in our house that we got when Bryant was really small, small enough that uh, he's actually able, was able to engage with it. It's called Monster Mashup, and the objective of the game is you get cards, and piece by piece you're supposed to build a monster with the body and the head and two arms and two legs. And you have different cards, all the cards that are the body pieces, and you disp- or discard them one at a time. But then you also have cards where you get to take the pieces from other people. I love taking them from other people. And no, I don't let my child win. I think that that just forms bad character. I love, he needs to learn how to lose with grace. But very early on in this, we realized that there was, there was a loophole in the rules that we weren't sure about because the rules weren't completely clear that it, it said you had to maintain three cards in your hand, but it never said you couldn't have more than three cards in your hand. So the first couple of times we played this, as soon as somebody would be about to get their, their monster complete, we would play the take a leg card and we'd take it away. And we would accumulate all of these cards in our hands over and over and nobody ever won and it was miserable. Because we were constantly taking each other's pieces. And so we called a family kind of ruling on the game. And we determined that if you had already played that piece, you couldn't take it from somebody else. You had to be able to take the piece and put it on your monster. And from then on, the game went without a hitch. Bryant loved it. Emerson loves it. We've been playing it as a family. And that's the purpose of rules. That when everybody knows the rules, understands the rules, participates according to the rules, then that's what ensures that everyone is able to have fun. And we would hope that this would be the case beyond just the games that we play at home or in church or as, as couples gathered around a game board. We would hope that that would be true of life in general. 
that if everybody knows the rules and understands the rules and, and participates and lives according to the rules, then everyone should be safe and happy and healthy. I don't know if you read the news headlines this week, but I think it just takes one day to realize that that ain't the case. What happens when others don't play by the rules? What happens when life itself doesn't seem to function according to the rules? What if the rules themselves are actually the problem to begin with? In our passage of Scripture this morning, we see Jesus in conflict with the spiritual leaders who've turned themselves into religious rule makers. And he challenges them, and in it he challenges our understanding of the entire source of righteousness itself. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, where Mark writes, Now the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him and again said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, covetousnesses, wickednesses, deceit, sensuality envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, 
Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace, the gift of your grace. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would grip our hearts and our minds, that we would not sit in judgment of this passage of Scripture, that we would not sit in judgment of the Pharisees, but instead, Holy Spirit, you would expose in our hearts the ways that we are just exactly like them. And that in understanding the ways that we are exactly like them and exactly like the sinners of this world, because we are sinners ourselves, you would lead us not into shame and not into a deeper sense of of guilt, paralysis, Father God, because we don't think of ourselves as you see us through your eyes of grace, but instead we, we would fall on our face and receive your grace as a gift that then leads to our righteousness. We would bring you honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus is now, we see, in conflict with the spiritual leaders. I mentioned last week that when Jesus looked out upon the crowds, we read that he, his, he had compassion for them because they were as though they were sheep without a shepherd. And if you look a couple chapters back, in, in chapters, earlier in chapter 6, you saw the political leadership that they were under, which was Herod who was living his life for himself and, and, and for his own pleasure and engaging in whatever sin he wanted without really any piercing of his conscience at all. And now we see him in conflict with the religious leaders. The Pharisees were one sect of the religious leadership. They were not the most powerful, though we oftentimes think of them being that way. But they were a, a very religious group and scholars of, of the Old Testament law And they show up and they are not particularly happy with Jesus Christ. They don't care about the fact that he is casting out demons and showing his power over Satan, that he is saving people, that he's feeding thousands upon thousands at a time. Instead, they're upset about something different. You see, what this passage of Scripture is teaching us, what Mark shows us in this passage of Scripture is the nature of righteousness. And the first thing that we see is that righteousness is not outside in. The Pharisees are upset with Jesus and his disciples not because they're violating any genuine standard of purity, but instead because of an infraction against their religious tradition. We often turn the Pharisees into biblical boogeymen that we can safely keep at arm's distance, but the reality is we're a whole lot more like them than we oftentimes think. Their religious traditions are not as heinous as we want to turn them into. Because when God delivered the Scriptures, He did so in broad strokes. We, we teach and we claim that the Bible itself gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. Because the Bible addresses everything that goes on in our life, either in a direct command or through an indirect principle. If God had taken the time to address absolutely every single possible scenario of a human being's life, the book would be inaccessible. Libraries would not be able to contain it. So God doesn't give us a book that governs every instance of our lives. Instead, he speaks to us in direct commands where it matters the most, but then in indirect principles as well. We see the same idea, the same uh, principle, even in our governing documents as Americans. 
The United States Constitution, by its very nature, is pretty broad. It paints in broad strokes the direction of the country. And it's up to legislatures, legislators, to apply that broad general law in specific laws where it's necessary. That's what we see in Scripture. And that's what the Pharisees have done. In the gray areas where the law had spoken in broad principles, the rabbis had developed rules and traditions to make keeping God's law or maintaining their personal spirituality and purity something that's accessible, something that's doable for your everyday Israelite. And so they had developed this whole system of tradition, that, and they, their, their understanding was if you walk according to this tradition, you'll keep yourself righteous before the Lord. Their understanding of righteousness is that it was from the outside in. That if I do the right things, I will be the right thing. But righteousness is not outside in. They're upset when Jesus breaks these laws. But they're not even really laws. They're just traditions. When they confront him, it's not, again, over a genuine infraction, but instead of an application of human tradition. They are the epitome of the ones who have shown up to dig the speck out of their brother's eye while they're walking around with a log in their own. Because Jesus immediately turns on them and he exposes their hypocrisy as he identifies the ways in which they are breaking God's commands just to keep up with their tradition. And he gives this example of how a a, a person was allowed to take all of their finances, all of their property, and say, listen, anything that I would have gotten from this, any of the profit that would have come out of this, that's dedicated to the Lord. And in doing so, they were then freed, supposedly, from their obligation to take care of their parents. But God's command, as Jesus says very clearly, the law itself, the book of of the law clearly says that you are to honor your father and your mother. And regardless of of your thinking and regardless of your position in life, that command never goes away. Whether you are married and with children of your own, you are still under the obligation to honor your father and your mother. But the Pharisees had created this tradition that allowed them to somehow cut a loophole around the commands of God. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy in doing it. And in doing so, he exposes ours as well. That we have our own traditions. We have our own cultural customs. And heaven forbid anybody come in and break one of those. In the church in America, there are are plenty of traditions and religious cultures and customs that we have somehow equated that if you're not doing church this way, you're doing church wrong. If you're not in the right kind of building, with the right kind of seats, you're not doing church right. We'll say the same, if you come to church in the wrong wardrobe, heaven forbid someone walk into church with a hat on their head. Because we've taken a military custom and tradition and we've equated it to the Word of God.
One of the most frequently asked questions of the church, and you'll see it on every single church website that is out there, is what is the acceptable dress code in church? What am I allowed to wear to church? It's embarrassing as a pastor to have to answer that question. Because we have imposed that, and we can sit back, and we can put our arms distance, and we can, we can do all kinds of things to say, well, that's not us, but the truth of the matter, it is us, because we're part of the bigger culture that has created this problem. And if we are just walking passively along it, if we don't see it, what about, what about the young families who are, are embarrassed to bring their children to church because, heaven forbid, their children be a distraction? Or the homeless individuals who are literally afraid. I had this conversation just this last week. I can't come to church because I haven't had a shower in a while. And people would shun me and move away from me. And I had to apologize on behalf of the church that says, I'm sorry that that is the the atmosphere that the church has created. An atmosphere that is hostile to you. So that you don't even feel welcome to come into the church. I think a big diagnostic question, we could go on and on and on, but this, this notion of what is proper? What is proper behavior? What is proper attire? What is it that's proper in church? As we've turned respectability into an idol. And in doing so, we create barriers and hurdles that don't invite people to Jesus, but keep him out. Where we force people to make a decision Am I going to go to church or give up this? Because we've brought into it in our own hearts, in our own lives, it's the sinful condition of every single one of us to think that righteousness works from the outside in. If I do the right things, if I look the right way, then I'll be righteous. But righteousness isn't on the outside in. Righteousness is inside out. Jesus draws the attention of the crowd to himself and he declares boldly in verse, um, verse 14, hear me, all you who understand, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Twice in these verses, first with the crowd in general and then with the disciples in private, he hammers home this notion that nothing that comes into your body, nothing that is on the outside is what has the ability to spiritually defile you. Instead, the spiritual defilement is inside of you already. He goes from hopeless to more hopeless. This isn't good news. Because what he goes on to say is that if you begin looking at things, it's out of our hearts come these wicked, evil things. And he lists 12 different things. The first six of them, he introduces it with the general evil thoughts. But then he goes into sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. All of those first six items are are plural in the Greek which means that they're ongoing behaviors in our lives. Those behaviors come from somewhere. The last six are singular, which means that that Jesus is identifying general patterns of behavior and character traits, that we are all, each and every one, liars, given over to sensuality. We're envious of one another. We're quick to slander each other. We're proud 
We're foolish, wandering from the ways of God. See, the the Pharisees are concerned about some external righteousness as they're busy building themselves their own tower of righteousness that is far more wicked and heinous than the Tower of Babel ever was. As they think that as long as we're doing the right things and following all of these rules and we're presenting ourselves in the right way, we are going to be able to climb ourselves, claw ourselves up to God. Do all the right things. We earn the reward of righteousness. Jesus wants us to see that all the washing in the world cannot cleanse that place deep inside of us where true defilement comes. And the place where true defilement is, is inside our hearts. And the worst part of the Pharisees' practice in their interpretation of Scripture is that they walked around genuinely believing that they were good and that they were fine because they'd done all the right things and they hadn't done any of the wrong things. And they were telling people, as long as you are doing the right things and staying away from the wrong things, you're good with God. All the while, deep inside of their hearts, they're broken and they're lost and they're dirty and they're defiled. But they can't see past the external behaviors to realize that those came from somewhere. And that's the real problem. In reality, there are a lot of Christians, some in this room and some around this nation, around this world, walking around with a false sense of of assurance. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't watch the wrong kinds of movies. But I pray and I go to church and I, I give and I serve when I'm supposed to. So I'm good. And that's all great, but all of that is external behaviors. But what Jesus wants us to see is that it's about what's on the inside. It's from the inside that come all of these wicked things in verses 21 through 22. They're birthed from within us because inside of us is what is broken. And no amount of behavior modification will ever change that. When I ask people about their relationship with the Lord... I get a lot of answers like, well, I do this or I don't do that. Very rarely do I come across someone who says, well, my Christianity is defined by an ever-increasing knowledge and understanding of my sinfulness and a constant turning away from it. This week I saw myself giving way to envy and to slander and to foolishness, and God in His grace and His mercy forgave me of it. And that's the key to true Christianity. Righteousness isn't outside in, it's inside out and it's upside down. And so as Jesus finishes, notice Mark's storytelling in this passage is so amazing because as he interacts with the Pharisees, he leaves it hanging. We don't see any type of further conflict with the Pharisees. You wonder, what happened? He pushed back on them and then all of a sudden the scene changes and he's, in, and he's with the crowd. He never gives them a chance to answer. And then the disciples come to him and they ask him, hey, explain this to us. And he gives the answer and he never actually, Mark goes back to tell us what happened with the disciples. He leaves us hanging in both of those instances. And immediately he whisks Jesus away to this place off to the west of Israel that's a Gentile country. It's Greek. They're not Jews. They're pagans. And we find Jesus in this Gentile city, and even there, as he's trying to get away, as the the heat is ramping up with the Pharisees and other people, 
He's getting away. He's attempting to rest. But even there, he cannot get away from the people who need him. And in comes this woman. And Mark introduces us to the answer. Because she's the foil to the Pharisees earlier in the passage of Scripture. Everything that they got wrong, she got right. These religious scholars couldn't see their hand in front of their face because of all of the legalism that they had imposed upon Scripture. And here this pagan Greek woman gets it. She's in trouble. She's desperate. She comes to Jesus because her daughter is possessed by a demon. Later on in Mark chapter 9, we'll see what that can mean. As a father comes on behalf of his son and the demon is repeatedly trying to drown the child, throwing the child in fire, doing all kinds of physical damage to the child. So here comes this woman absolutely desperate to Jesus for something, for Jesus to to rescue her daughter. And Jesus rebuffs her. He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I don't know about you, somebody calls me a dog, I'm not really going to respond to that very well. Somebody calls me something that, because especially in the Jewish culture, dogs were not house pets. They, they, were, they were scavengers. They were dirty. They were defiled. And the Jews had a tendency to call the, the Gentiles, the pagans around them, this racial slur, dogs. But Jesus doesn't use that term. He actually uses the word puppies. So he says to her, speaking to her in a parable, now is not the time. He says, first, let the children be fed first. So here's the picture, okay? Imagine there's a family sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner, and you've got a small child down there excited and ready to eat Thanksgiving. They got their turkey, and they got their, their sweet potato casserole, and they got all the things that, that mama and daddy love and have fixed for them all these years. And so you've got this little three, four-year-old kid ready to just dig into their Thanksgiving dinner. And dad walks over and takes that plate full of food and pulls it out from in front of that child and turns around and sets it on the floor and lets a dog eat it while the child has to sit and watch and go hungry. There isn't anybody in the world who would think that that is loving or kind. And so what Jesus says, it's not right for me to take the portion that belongs to first, as Paul would later say, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and lay it before you. It's not time yet for you to get the portion that belongs to the Jews. So he rebuffs her with this parable. And what's amazing is that she does not get upset. She doesn't demand her rights or the rights of her daughter. She doesn't get, her, get, get worked up into a tizzy because he had the, the, the audacity to call her a puppy dog. She's the first person in all of Mark to hear and understand one of Jesus' parables first one. The Pharisees haven't gotten it. The disciples haven't gotten it. But she hears this parable. She takes heart and she says, yeah, I understand your picture. But here's the thing. I'm not asking for you to take the plate off the table and give it to me. I'm just asking for some of the scraps that fall because the children are so greedy and so messy. She accepts her position as a Gentile, pagan, outside of God's chosen people at this point in time. And she asks for mercy. 
she asks for what she doesn't deserve. That's grace. And Matthew tells us that Jesus marvels at her response. He said, tell you what, you got it right. Go. The demon's gone. And this woman who accepts her position, instead of attempting to climb, she gets what the Pharisees don't get. In her actions, we learn not only is righteousness upside down, but righteousness is upside down because it's a gift, not a reward. It's something that is given, not earned. She's done nothing and can do nothing to receive and and to, to obligate Jesus Christ to give her this. Instead, she just simply presents herself there in humility and in faith that Jesus Christ can do what she needs him to do even though she doesn't deserve it and she accepts the fact that she doesn't deserve it and she asks anyway. Because righteousness is not a reward, it's a gift. The Pharisees' hearts were filled with pride as they were convinced that their actions promised them the reward of righteousness. It's been said, when we're filled with ourselves, there's no room left even to be filled with God. Righteousness and a place in God's family isn't like a job interview where I show up and I start laying out all of the good reasons why I should get this job, all of my past successes, and all of the things where I just polish up every image of me that you can possibly get and present myself to God. It's not like that. Because we can't obligate God to give us what we don't deserve. And in a world... That's around us. The way up is to promote yourself. But in God's kingdom, the way up is down. In God's kingdom, we need to be turned upside down so that we are emptied of ourselves so that we can then be filled with God. That's what the Pharisees refused to do. That's what the disciples are struggling to do. But that's what this woman does. She allows herself to be emptied by God's grace. And then filled with his love and his mercy. When I came out of high school, I had a UNC Tar Tar Heels hat that I wore everywhere. Wore it all through college. I liked it. It was a white hat. It had had the the UNC logo on the front. It had a Tar Heel on the back. And and I wore it everywhere until Sarah and I had been married and we went to, to Gatlinburg. And we were sitting in this, this little German restaurant in Gatlinburg, and there was this guy that was sitting across on a booth at the other, other side of the aisle, and he started pegging me with all kinds of questions about the, the Tar Heels and their basketball season. And I just smiled, and yeah, uh-huh, that's great. Sounds good. Yeah, uh-huh. Because I had absolutely no idea what he's talking about. I like the hat. I thought it was a nice hat. So I wore the hat. And after that encounter, I was so uncomfortable that I decided to get rid of the hat. Because remember, I'm a rule follower. And and I felt like if I didn't know what was going on with the team, then that wasn't fair. It was a betrayal of people who were genuinely fans. And I went a long time without a hat. And I asked myself, what am I a fan of? Who am I a fan of? And to be honest, I really didn't know what I was a fan of. Like these Pharisees, I knew a whole lot of what I didn't like. I knew who I wasn't a fan of. I cared more about Tennessee losing than I did anybody winning. 
And I still care more about Tennessee losing, almost more about Tennessee losing than I do about Auburn winning. Worst weekend of the, of the season is when Tennessee wins and Auburn loses. Because I grew up with, with Tennessee fans, and I knew that church was going to be miserable. Because if Tennessee won, they were going to be unbearable. And if Tennessee lost, they were going to be rude and ugly. So I made the decision a long time ago that I might as well get some kind of joy out of it. And when they lose, I'm going to rub it in their face. But that didn't work for very long because then I landed at Lone Oak Baptist Church where I was surrounded by Alabama fans and Tennessee fans. And they didn't like it about the fact that I'd love to rub it in their face when they lost. They wanted to be able to do the same to me. So they pushed me and said, well, who are you a fan of? I said, well, I kind of always liked Auburn. I almost applied there, and then I realized it was way too expensive for me to go to college at Auburn. But I really didn't know much about them. But I had declared that I liked Auburn. And I would have sat there in that comfortable just kind of distance, yeah, here it is, except there was a family in the church, the only other Auburn fans that were there. And Travis and Adrian immediately flocked because all of a sudden they had allies. And Travis would talk, call me, and he would text me, and we would talk, and we would go through things. And, and he was a genuine fan. He grew up in Alabama. He grew up going to the games. He loved Auburn. He was part of the Auburn nation. And he began, his excitement began to, to just overwhelm, and it began to overwhelm me and fill me until eventually I became an outspoken Auburn fan. Where I come to the place where when Auburn wins, I'm on a high. I love it. And when Auburn loses, man, I feel it. I'm embarrassed, especially when they don't play well. What in the world does that have to do with what I'm talking about? I fear that there are a lot of people in this room and in this world. You're walking around with a Jesus jersey, but you don't really have any type of feeling for him at all. When you're asked about your relationship with Jesus Christ, all you can really do is stutter. Your identity in Jesus Christ is ultimately boiled down to the list of things you do and the list of things you don't. I go to church, I give my tithes and my offerings, I serve in the Christian ministry. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't go to the wrong places, I don't hang around the wrong people, I don't vote for the wrong candidates. But you have no real emotional connection to Jesus at all. You're like me walking around with a Tar Heels hat on your head and you couldn't tell me, tell me I couldn't tell you the, the simplest thing about them. What you can't say is that you feel joy when Jesus feels joy. That you feel joy about the things that make Jesus joyful, which is the salvation of the lost, which is righteousness and justice and service that is selfless in its nature, acts of generosity. You rejoice when Jesus wins. And you hurt when Jesus hurts. You hurt when the world rejects the marginalized and the helpless and the struggling Just as long as your church looks the way you want it to look, 
And your life looks the way that you think it's supposed to look because you can check off all the boxes and say, I followed all the rules, Jesus. But your heart is far, far from His. What you need is to fall in love with Jesus. Maybe what you need is somebody who's already in love with Jesus, like Travis was, who comes alongside and says, hey, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is so cool. Would you walk with me and I will walk you into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ? Because a lot of Christians are at that place where I've, I've made the declaration, here I am, I, I'm, I'm in and, and I'm on team Jesus. And then we're just sitting back and we're kind of watching and we don't really get it. And what we need is somebody to step into our lives and disciple us into a love for Jesus. And maybe you're in this room right now and you are in love with Jesus. Then your job is to find that person who's still kind of on the outside and pull them in. To live life with each other. Not according to a bunch of rules beating each other over the heads when, when we don't fill, uh, fulfill all of the things that are proper according to Christianity, but instead be a source of grace and mercy and love and compassion. And together, fall in love with Jesus. That starts with realizing that the place that needs the most work is me. What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton would say, I am. Start with you. Start on your face before the Lord and asking him, what in my heart do I need to confess and repent of? How can I begin living a life of active repentance as I turn away from the things that bring dishonor, true dishonor to God? And start living in love with him. How do you need to fall in love with Jesus? and receive righteousness this morning. It's a gift of God's grace. I invite you, if you would, to take a moment and bow your heads and close your eyes. And spend a moment in God's presence in prayer. And ask Him to reveal, what are the ways that I have allowed custom and tradition to stand in the way of what really matters, which is God's glory and His grace and His mercy? What are the ways that I've tried to clean myself up from the outside in. God, show me the wickedness that's inside of me that I can turn from it. And then ask God's grace to cleanse you from the inside out as you position yourself before him this morning. Take a minute and pray. And I'll close this in just a moment.